You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Back to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, the brain that he stole from the laboratory was a criminal brain. It's Jeff McLarge-Huge. <laughs> it was not Hans Delbruck, noted <laughs> philanthropist. No. no. It was Abby. Abby's, Abby, Abby someone. Abby someone. <laughs> yep. How's it going? You all right? Yeah, it's going, going just fine. As fine as fine can be. Yep. Yeah. You should know how I'm doing because we actually just saw each other over the weekend. That was super fun. Yep. And you introduced me to the movie Movie 43. Yep. Which is not a good movie, but boy, was it entertaining. It, so. Yes. It's, I, and, and it's not a good movie. It's got like <laughs> 0.2 on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I think it earns it. But, but I, I, nev- I still laughed at a bunch of it. I never said that movie was good. I never said no. it was an outstanding movie that uh, explores the, the human condition. It's just... Funny, funny, funny stuff. It was very funny. Uh, I watched another movie that does not explore the human condition, and it wasn't funny either. It was just effed up and bizarre. We watched this movie called, I think it was called Fried Larry or Fried Barry or something like that. Um, It was about a, a heroin user who gets abducted by aliens how they got into his body. Uh, let's just say there's one appendage on your body that only has one hole, and that's where they went in. Uh, oh. Yeah. Oh. So it wasn't his nose because there's two there. So, uh, yeah, they went in there really uh, graphically, too. Oh. And then the rest of the movie is him just kind of, like, adapting to human life because he's an alien inside this human body. And right. And the actor they got to play fried Harry or Larry or Barry or whatever it was, he doesn't really do a lot of acting per se. He was the lead role, but he's always just like kind of like an extra in the background in these movies because he's so weird and bizarre looking. Yeah. Yeah. I honestly don't think I could sit through that movie again. <laughs> what have you, what, you see anything besides, so, besides yeah. movie 43? <laughs> yes. So I started going back and watching like old movies, old movies. I watched a film, I don't know, a few months back called Trumbo which is about a guy named Dalton Trumbo who wrote Johnny Got His Gun, among other things. He wrote Spartacus, and he wrote uh, a bunch of other scripts. But for a period of time, he was blacklisted in Hollywood because he was a communist. All right. Johnny Got His Gun is a great book. It is. And while he was blacklisted so that he didn't starve, he ended up writing films under a pseudonym or a couple of different pseudonyms for these these sort of fly-by-night B-picture companies uh, owned by the King Brothers. One of the films that he wrote for them for like 1200 bucks was called Gun Crazy. And it was freaking awesome. I watched that, and I couldn't believe how good it was. It was like a super-duper modern thriller made in 1950. It was really, really groundbreaking. And Um, and if I wanted to watch this movie, how would I go about watching it? 
Well, right right now it's available on, I think I saw it on HBO Max. But man, is it a fantastic movie. And it made me go back and start to look at other things that I've overlooked because, you know, these came out 20 years before I was born. Oh, right. You know, so I went back, I watched that. I watched a movie from 1929 called Pandora's Box, which was even better. Um, so there's all kinds of great stuff that I find myself going back and sort of filling in little holes in my cinematic universe with. So. Oh, I'm looking at it right now. I can watch it for $1.99 on Amazon. So There you go. So I might do that just on your recommendation. It's so good. And the girl who's in that movie, uh, her character name is Laura something, but it's like, um, Peggy Cummings is unbelievably beautiful. Oh, nice. Yeah. But speaking of old movies, you know, you know the Warner Brothers cartoons and Looney Tunes, yeah. right? Yep. Now, you could sit there and hum their theme song, right? I can. Yep. Oh. All right. Did you know that that song has a name? Not only does that song have a name, Jeff, that song has lyrics. What is the yeah. name of the Looney Tunes theme? Oh my God! Uh, I'm gonna have to think about this. I should have I should have done my research this week. That's cheating. I figured this one was coming, <laughs> and, I, and I didn't do it. So no, I don't know right off the hand. But I, let's see if I can remember yep. to to think my way through it before we get to the end of the show. Oh. Well, then I'm not giving you a hint. I'll give you a hint. That's... I'll give you a hint at the tail end of the show before. All right, I'll take it. Yeah. That's fine. All right, but this is the week beginning October the 11th. And uh, you know what? All my papers fell on the floor, and I have no idea whose turn it is. So uh, why don't we we'll, – we'll say it's your turn. October 11th, 1975, Saturday Night Live, created by Lorne Michaels and staffed with a bunch of people that he was able to kind of poach from a Canadian comedy show that was like a radio show and some other stuff and National Lampoon, premieres on NBC with George Carlin as host. It's not the last – show that has live episodes but it's the only one that has been broadcast live since 1975 minus a few episodes where they had a short delay to accommodate the host uh, uh, such as andrew dice clay and uh, richard pryor too right they had a delay for richard pryor and the show went on to create careers for a lot of people oh for sure uh, yeah who, who are still in comedy today some of them are you know getting up there in age like dan Aykroyd and chevy chase and bill murray but there are a lot of up-and-comers like joan kuzak was on that show joe piscopo like mm -hmm. billy crystal like all these people have had time on Saturday Night Live and contributed to that cultural evolutionary program. Yeah, there's so many people that are like went on to become absolutely enormously famous that you forget right. that they were on Saturday Night Live. Right. Like Eddie Murphy, yep. for, for an example. Will Ferrell. Dana Carvey. Right. Mike Myers. Mike the, Myers yeah, the list. Yeah. The list is ex very, very extensive on that how, how that was like a springboard for all these people. Right. Yep. Yep. And Saturday Night Live is, it's been on for, let's say, what's that, what'd you say, 70, 19, 1975? 75. Right? So what's yeah. that, 45 years, right? 40, right. 46 years. Basically, since 1978, everybody's been saying, yeah, it sucks now. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as funny as the original cast yeah. was. I've, I, yeah, I still sometimes say that. And even that's not, you know, that's just looking back for the sake of looking back. I think that the only time that you can say that for real is that one season that it wasn't produced by Lorne Michaels. Right, the one with Robert Downey Jr. and Anthony Michael Hall, yeah. right, yeah. I say that all the time about uh, music where anything that happened, not just music, just pop culture in general, anything that happens mm -hmm. after your 30th birthday sucks, 
You know, right. so many not I don't I don't subscribe to that. But a lot of right. people I know, a lot of my contemporaries, anything that happens yeah. after their thirtieth birthday, they just don't want anything to do with it. Right. And I, I'm definitely not one of those people. You know, I tend to try and I don't know if I have as mu- as many of my feet into popular culture as I used to, but I try and keep at least a couple of toes in there. Yeah, especially with to, music to, for you. Yeah. But even for, even for stuff like you know comedy saturday night live etc i try and keep up with like who's funny and and what sketches are popular and all that sort of thing and i watch clips here and there so i mean you can see the evolution of of how the show has changed there was a few seasons where it was super duper political yep. usually that's around election years and and then it's it pulls back from that in between and it's it has this weird rhythm and i think that a lot of that rhythm has to come from Lorne Michaels sort of overall production. He's the guy that sort of sets the tone still. Yeah. I think for that show every week. For the last I'm gonna say the last ten years, that show has been the women. The women have been the absolute stars of that show. Like I couldn't even name you some of the guys that are on that show, but the women, freaking Leslie Jones, Cicely Strong, Kate McKinnon, all of them, they're just fantastically hilarious. All of them. It never says like who writes which sketches or anything, so you know that. But it, it, the whole group works on stuff, right. both as a group and individually to pull things together. And there's so much talent in working in such a short, high pressure environment that it's it's amazing that they can make it work the way that they make it work every week and bring in somebody from outside who is like <laughs> has to learn all this stuff sort of on the fly and then do it live. Right. Moving on to oh no, it's a sad, sad day in music history, Jeff. <laughs> Uh-oh. What, what did I a do? A red letter day. October the 12th, 1969, Paul is dead. A Detroit disc jockey and his radio audience determined from, quote-unquote, clues found in Beatles songs and album covers that Paul McCartney had died in a car accident in 1967. Thus perpetuating the idea that Paul McCartney is dead, has been dead he for years dead. and was replaced by Billy Shears, yeah. yes. We bring this up every time it comes yeah, around, um, it, irrespective of daytime or year or whatever. But amazing. Uh, uh, the rumor claimed that McCartney, after an argument with his bandmates, sped off in his car, crashed, and was decapitated. <laughs> oh, he blew his mind out of yeah. the car. Yeah, noticed that the light yeah right, at, right at the shoulders, yeah. Uh, the remaining right. Beatles then substituted him with an orphan <laughs> that they had trained to impersonate him. Man, I've known about this story since I was a teenager. This is these are details I was not aware of. He was an orphan and, and he was decapitated. <laughs> oh. My daughter's driving instructor used the phrase "decapitated at the waist" in her uh, <laughs> descriptions of bad things that can happen to you if you drive, like Paul McCartney yeah, apparently yeah, yeah. did. Decapitated at the waist. Yep. <laughs> decapitated at the there waist. There was a uh, uh, there was a document uh, quote unquote documentary on Netflix that I had watched that was allegedly narrated by George Harrison. I do a more convincing George Harrison than this person did. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, it was it was great. It was talking about, you know, the, all the conspiracy of the the Paul is dead. This has this rumor has some freaking legs to it though. You know, yeah. but I guess it's one of those things where if you look hard enough, you can find it. You know, it also came back pretty strong during the 80s. Uh, during the satanic yep. panic because everybody was looking for everything. Right. And they were saying like, well, look, when I play say, say, say backwards, 
It says, yitz, yitz, yitz. It's funny because whenever I play say, say, say forward, I want my money back. <laughs> well, oh, that one you play like, uh, you know, Ebony and Ivory backwards. And that one's like, Michael Jackson stole all our music <laughs> and is selling it to Nike. So, uh, yep. And there's a book out called Turn Me On, Dead Man, The Beatles and the Paul is Dead Hoax. And it documents everything that's uh, that's to be had over there. I wish I could remember the name of that documentary that I watched just so I could see if it's still available somewhere because it was hilarious. It was hilarious that, that this guy was trying to pull, you know, push himself off as George Harrison. All right, let's move on to the 13th. What do you got? Ah, the 13th, 1792. Uh, the f- very first edition of the Farmer's Almanac is published in the United States. Ugh. This is... this. <laughs> yes. Now, this isn't the first time an, an almanac has been published. They've been published for hundreds upon hundreds of years. But the very first one that was published in, in the United States was published in 1792. And that brand of almanac is still published to this day. Yeah, and it's not any more accurate today than it was in 1792. Almanacs, for those of you who don't know, are books that mix a combination of astrology and celestial movements that aren't tied to spiritualism to weather and seasonal stuff to tell you when to do things like when it's a good day to plant corn or a bad day to plant pumpkins or a great day to raise chickens or a bad week to have sheep. And it's all of it is based on like, what's the good phrase to use here? Before the science was invented. Oh, bullshit. Uh, Is that the word you're looking for? Uh, yeah, I think it was like one of those, like, look, I don't know how this, any of this works, but I'm going to hope for the best here buy my book. You know, somebody doesn't want to grow corn, so they're going to tell you when to grow corn if you buy his book. Sure. Yeah. So both. Yeah. <laughs> Flim flam. <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> Humbug was a, yeah another one. Yeah. Humbug. Balderdash. <laughs> as insane as it sounds, like my dad was a restaurant owner, and before that he was a plumbing supply sales guy, okay. and every year he used to buy the almanac. Why? I I don't. Maybe in his mind's eye he was a he was a farmer, <laughs> or. There was some thing in there that gave him insight into what numbers to play for the Massachusetts State Lottery every single day. Oh, it's going to give you your lucky numbers. Man, I remember being like eight years old and getting a fortune cookie that says, yeah, lucky numbers are 8, 13, 26, and 42. And I'm like, ooh, I got to play those in a lottery, Mom. And she's like, shut up. Just, just shut up. <laughs> My favorite fortune cookie is one that I opened that said, help, I am being held prisoner in a fortune cookie factory. <laughs> My favorite one says, that wasn't chicken. <laughs> oh. well, at any rate, the almanac, there's still people who adhere to the almanac the same way they hire people to divine where water is on their property or, you know, I don't know, sprinkle goat's blood on their scarecrows to chase off evil spirits, I, I, I guess. I don't know. But it's still published. I'd like to know, there's going to be a way to find out, what sells more annually? Farmer's Almanacs or Ouija boards? I think they, Almanacs because they're available friggin' everywhere. Yeah, and they're cheaper, I imagine, yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, you have to buy one every year, whereas a Ouija board has a you shelf only life. need one. <laughs> yeah, it has a shelf life, as in you use it once and say, this is crap, and then put it on the shelf and never take it back down again. That's hey, true. speaking of talking to ghosts, oh. get this one. October the 14th, 1912. Former U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt is shot in the chest. Uh, that's not funny, Jeff. But he's shot in the chest by John Schrank, uh in Milwaukee. Roosevelt, who had served uh, as president from 1901 to 1909, 
was running for a third term, a re-election. He had skipped a couple of years. And uh, Schrank, Schrank was uh, told in a dream by the ghost of William McKinley, who was <laughs> pointing to a picture of Roosevelt to kill Roosevelt and avenge McKinley's death as a warning to those who would run for a third term uh, as president. Uh, it's a very, very, very detailed like delusion to have. Yeah, you're, you're not going to believe this one. Ready? Uh, okay. uh, Shrank was later declared insane and institutionalized. Oh. <laughs> Big surprise yep. there. For the remainder of his life. Yeah, Roosevelt was on his way to deliver a speech when he got shot. Uh, the bullet was deflected by his eyeglasses and a 50-page yeah. copy of his speech that he was carrying in his jacket. Yep, and uh, as I understand it, he was still it still broke the skin. Yeah, but it didn't penetrate bone or anything. And they said, Mister, you know, Mister President, are you, are you okay? Yeah. You've been shot. And he said, I feel as strong as a bull moose. Yep, and delivered the speech as written to the much acclaim of all the Milwaukeeites that were there. Yep, and uh, that was the beginning of a very short-lived third party called the Bull Moose Party. Huh. Yep, the bullet actually did it penetrated the skin, but it didn't get far in, like far enough to make it life-threatening he says right. yeah he says uh i am not going to be able to make a very long speech but i will try to do my best uh the doctor determined that it would be too dangerous to remove the bullet so roosevelt carried around with him for the rest of his life yep yep and that's how you treat a bullet wound you, sh- you just sew it over yeah up and sew it over yeah and that's why that motherfucker is on mount rushmore <laughs> <laughs> And I'm sure after that he went and he wrestled a bear and he fought four anacondas. And- I mean, that's like the Wu-Tang Clan being the president of the United States. Roosevelt right? is no one to f*** with. Well, right. <laughs> well, it goes, goes to show you, like, if you're going to pack your eyeglasses, make sure you put it in the same pocket as your 50-page speech. Yep. All right. So let's get on to the next segment, the 15th. Oh, oh it's a bit of a third rail. Let's tread lightly. Okay. October 15th, 2017. Uh, Alyssa Milano, actress, tweets, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write uh, pound sign me too. And it prompts a flood of replies on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook with that hashtag. Ultimately, what this does is it begins what's sort of come to be currently known as the Me Too movement. Yes. Uh, And it wasn't just, I mean, I'm not going to diminish any of the women who had, and men who had posted the hashtag me too. I mean, Terry Crews posted hashtag me too, among other, some other guys, Right. but a lot of, of famous actresses ended up posting that hashtag. You realize that when this information kind of came out, you can see where their careers sort of dropped off and how that was a consequence, I think of them reacting to the harassment after it had happened. So Courtney Love, Mira Sorvino and dozens upon dozens of others, as well as Alyssa Milano have all sort of put the finger on Harvey Weinstein and some other uh, film producers, but there are also directors that are involved in other things too, who have abused their, their seat of not only did it bring this to light and put it in sort of the public zeitgeist for examination, but it shows the power of, using that sort of simple communication tool over a broad spectrum of communication platforms can draw a lot of information in a very short time. Right, and there's also the power in numbers, uh, so to speak. Unfortunately, whenever there's something that blows up this big, this fast, there's going to be detractors and or people that are going to, you know, going to try to make jokes out of it. But we're not talking about the, those people. We're talking about the uh, the actual people. Right. But the detractors will and did say things like, oh, they're just doing it because everybody else is doing it. It's like, oh, I don't know if that's so much the case. I think it's more like I 
been sitting on this secret for a very long time and I'm empowered by all these people, you know, doing it at the right. same time. I, I, I don't feel so alone now. It's interesting too, and, and using it as a springboard to sort of look backward, you'll hear actresses say things, actors and actresses say things in the past, not the distant past, mm-hmm. which should have brought this stuff to light, but it was sort of brushed off or ignored when it was said. I remember distinctly Courtney Love saying when she was being interviewed during the release for The People versus Larry Flint, where she says, hey girls, if Harvey Weinstein invites you to his hotel room for dinner or to look at a script, say no. Right. And she vanished from film like right after that, you know? Yeah, she was excellent in The People versus Larry Flynn. Yeah. I was actually very surprised. And I was like, well, maybe she's got a better career in acting ahead of her. And unfortunately, at that time, Harvey Weinstein did wield a lot of power in Hollywood. And he got taken down by this Me Too movement. Yep. How do they say that in the uh, They Might Be Giants song? They say you can't shake hands with the devil and say you're only kidding, right? Yes. So, I mean, Weinstein was abused. Let's just use him as the example because he's the the most famous. I mean, there's... (sighs) <sighs> the recently released Bill Cosby and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But these people abuse their power for so long that when they finally get taken down, it seems like a big deal. It's like, well, these people should have been taken down a long time ago. Right. But again, when you're in a position of power, you ultimately can become untouchable. And it takes something like a mass movement, right. something that can connect so many victims of this type of thing together in without an expense without lawyers without without anything so that all there's power in numbers there's power in people and and that's what draws in things like the press that now all of a sudden we'll start to look at things more critically right it's an important moment for yeah sure. i mean i introduced this segment as a third rail and of the press probably you know didn't want to touch that because that could be career suicide for a journalist you know, if they wanted to take down Harvey Weinstein and then Harvey Weinstein makes a couple of phone calls and then that journalist doesn't have a job anymore, just like Courtney Love didn't have an acting job anymore. Right. 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 All right. So that's uh, that's a depressing topic. Well, I mean, it's an uplifting, but also it's sad that we had to go through all that to get there. But I'm glad that we got there. Okay. Yes. Moving on to the next day. Uh, this is one of those stories that I kind of like. This speaks to my personality. So October 16th, 1928, uh, a patent is awarded for the first practical light bulb that is frosted on the inside. Oh. Okay, so you know a light bulb is, is yeah. painted white to diffuse the light in it, you know, distributes the light more evenly instead of having just this like yes. one big bright dot in the middle of the room. So the glass is frosted on the inside. Now, there was this new guy that was working at General Electric, uh, the National Electric Lamp Company, right? As a joke, they gave him the job to do the frosting on the inside of the light bulb because up until that point, they just kind of figured it was impossible. <laughs> yeah, they gave him the job to do it. Uh, his name was Marvin Pipkin, and then he showed up and he did it. B- Bill, you and I, we both went to vocational high yes. school and were in the machine shop and were probably told to go get a left-handed screwdriver or go find some blue steam or whatever, some other dumb, stupid thing that freshmen are told in their new role as a machinist, yeah, the right? Arkansas was always my favorite. <laughs> so I can see that that guy's like first week at General Electric. All right, Pipkin, done the orientation. You know, you've slipped over the health insurance thing, right? It's all signed. You've, all right, your first job. So yeah, we're going to have you figure out how to frost the inside of these light bulbs. Um, we want This is like an aptitude test. So, you know, you make it happen and, and we'll come back and check on you in a couple of days. 
And Meanwhile, the guys at the water cooler are like biting through their knuckles, trying not to laugh. Right. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're off. They're offside at drinking a beer. Like, and I told them to frost the inside <laughs> of the light bulb. Ah! Remember when we did that to Hanran? He ran around like a dummy for three months. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, he's like, here's your light bulb, sir. <laughs> hey, this works. And that's how we get soft light. Thank you, Pippin. <laughs> that, uh, like I said, that really, like, speaks into my personality. Whenever I first started with the unicycle, somebody at work was like, you know, that's uh, that takes a lot of balance. You might not be able to do that. And I said to him, I was like, that thought never even crossed my mind that I wouldn't be able to learn this. I knew it was going to be hard. I knew it was going to take some time. But the thought of not being able to do it, yeah, that never even occurred to me. Well, it's funny. There's a phrase that you use. We were, t- we were talking about dealing with, with engineers, yes. right, in our respective jobs. And you used a fantastic phrase one day, and I've, I've employed it repeatedly since then. So you should be getting royalty checks in the mail oh, soon. Good. Which is, when told to do something that's incredibly difficult, you say... I didn't say I couldn't do it. I said it was impossible, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I always thought that was such a fantastic phrase for, for like how you, that's how you solve problems, you know? Right. Yeah. I said it was impossible. I didn't say I couldn't do it. I yeah. Couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, the, I remember that the, the engineer guy, had, like the new engineer guy had just like the, he was like the new boss. He had yeah. just started and I had said that to somebody that was working underneath him. He looks at me, he goes, I like this guy. Yeah. All right, and wrap it up the week. Uh, October 17th, 1961. I love this story. This is one of my favorites. The New York Museum of Modern Art hangs a painting by Henry Matisse called La Bateau upside down. They didn't realize that it was upside down until December 3rd. You have to sort of know what kind of paintings Matisse did. Matisse did a lot of cut paper paintings and things that were abstract. So there's no real up or down in this painting. Right. And I don't know who noticed it because it didn't get noticed until December 3rd, which is like a month and a half later. Somebody was like, uh, that's upside down. Hey, you think Henry Batiste could put like a little X in the top right corner right. or something? <laughs> this side up. Or yeah, just yeah. something etched on the back of the frame, you know, to, to top. But so they, so they had it upside down for like a month and a half? Yeah. I wonder who noticed. And I, that's what I want to know. I wonder if Matisse was walking through. He was like, oh, this is a, I love this museum. It's one of my favorites to come to after I've painted the 728th painting of my coffee urn, which is <laughs> hanging in the other room. Oh, my God. It's La Baton. You've got it upside down. Except it's like four squiggles and a triangle. So there's like, no one would know except kind of him. It'd be even funny if they fixed it and they just turned it 90 degrees. Like, no! <laughs> It's still wrong. It's like for another month. But no, I love that story. It goes to the the heart of what I love so much about modern, like modern art, especially modern abstract art is because that will change the way that I view that painting from now on for the rest of my life, (laughs) knowing this, because every time I see it and I have art books and I look through art books and stuff, if I ever see this, the Labato painting, I'm going to see it and imagine that I'm seeing it upside down. But I mean, I've been to a couple of Matisse exhibits in, in Boston. This book sucks. Every painting is upside down. Right, exactly, yes. Every <laughs> painting is upside down. Damn it. Except for this one. And who is online? What Wasit say? But I've, I've been to Matisse exhibits, so I'll be looking for Labato the next time I go to see if they hang it right up or hang it upside down and say, in 1961, this was hung upside down for 45 days. <laughs> it's a beautiful piece about, that changes the nature of art for that time and gives it its own life. I think that's fantastic. I love art. No one else I love? Birthdays. Yeah. So many birthdays. We have on October the 11th, 1946, 
American Hall of Fame songwriter and singer with the band Hall & Oates, the man who puts the hall in Hall & Oates, Daryl Hall. Yeah. Daryl, it's uh, still active today. Yep. Uh, his, yep. His last name is actually Hall, but it's spelt different. It's like H-O-H-L. So he just spelt it to Hall, like, you know, deck the halls. He yeah. should have changed it to Mellencamp. That would have made it way easier. <laughs> that would have been a lot easier or, or on the Bo- Bobcat Mellencamp first, and then just Mellencamp. <laughs> uh, yep, Hall and Oates, uh, amazingly popular pop band during the 80s. Uh, amazing soul voice on that guy. Yeah. Like, like, you wouldn't know it from their hits. But, yeah, very, very uh, accomplished, soulful singer. He's been doing that live from Daryl's house with, uh, you know, having musicians come over and just jam at his house, which is pretty cool. And and eat vegan food, I think, is part, part of that show as well. Yep. They eat a whole bunch of vegan food and then they play songs. He's actually, I think he's, I don't think he's aging as much as he's transforming into a giant-sized Muppet. <laughs> a giant-sized Daryl Hall Muppet. All right. Next up. Uh, October 12th, 1968. Your favorite Wolverine and mine, Hugh Jackman. Uh, yes. Born in Australia. And he's a song and dance man as well as the world's most powerful self-regenerating mutant. Known primarily, I guess, for being in the X-Men movies. Although his career is way varied now. So he's done romantic comedies, he's done musical theater, and well as like musicals like The Greatest Showman. And he was in movie 43. Yeah, he's an all-around interesting guy to watch work and seems to really enjoy the work that he does. I watched him in what was it? The Prestige. He was fantastic in that movie. Yep. Again, I haven't ever seen him in anything that I haven't really enjoyed. Whenever they cast him as Wolverine, I think we all kind of collectively went, eh. Who's, who's this he, guy? Yeah, but he pulled it off in spades, right. too. Yep. And he got into, like, ridiculous shape at a later age in life that men don't usually get into that kind of shape in. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, he's a spokesman now for, like, skin cancer awareness because he's had a couple of surgeries on his, I think his nose. He's had lesions on his nose removed and has raised money for and done like awareness campaigns for that. So, yeah, he's one of those people, and I, I bring up this type of person quite a bit. That if somebody goes, eh, I don't like you, Jackman, no, you're just being difficult because right. you, Jackman's awesome. Yes. All right, now here's me being difficult. October 13th, <laughs> 1925, uh, American legendary comedian Lenny Bruce, who eh, I don't like Lenny Bruce. Yeah, uh, you know. <laughs> Honestly, though, like I fell in love with stand-up comedy at a very, very young age, you know, and I always heard the legend of Lenny Bruce. And, you know, when I was a kid, there was no Internet. You couldn't just go out and find stuff and all that. I had always just heard the legend of Lenny Bruce. And maybe 15 years ago, whenever the Internet was making the world available, I found some Lenny Bruce stuff to listen to, and I actually don't find him very funny. He's a weird figure in that his stand-up comedy stopped being stand-up comedy in any sort of traditional sense Mm -hmm. when he was arrested for obscenity, for using swear words and other stuff in his act. And that became a huge First Amendment case in the early 1960s, I guess. And then for the remainder of his recordings, he basically talked about First Amendment issues and none of it was funny. It was just him sort of reading like the First Amendment and what what had happened and retelling the story over and over again. And, and he was he ended up losing club gigs and other stuff and some movie work and other things around that mm-hmm. because he was in there fighting for, for First Amendment freedoms, for freedom of speech to keep the government from censoring his act. 
Right. Well, what happened with Lenny Bruce was he was like the first domino. Maybe he wasn't the funniest comedian in the world, but he inspired a lot of people. Right. Any comedian that worked blue, like after Lenny Bruce, will cite Lenny Bruce right. as an inspiration. I know George, Co- yeah. George Collin famously got arrested with Lenny Bruce. And that's when George Collin went from his like zany kind of like character impressions to the seven words you can't say on television and his right. social commentary kind of comedy. Yeah. So, all right. Right, right, right. He set, he set, the, he set the stage for it, for sure. Yep. yep. Just because you're the first doesn't mean you're the best. And Lenny Bruce was the first. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So moving on to the 14th. Who do you got? Speaking of just because you're the first doesn't mean you're the best. October 14th, 1927. The best, but not the first of the James Bonds, Roger Moore. Ah, I don't like Roger Moore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, born in Britain, actor on The Saints, which he converted into becoming James Bonds once they got tired of dealing with Sean Connery's money demands, split the role, and went on to parlay that into a whole bunch of other roles as well, including, but not limited to, playing a crazy person who thinks he's Roger Moore in The Cannonball Run. I freak, that's my favorite. <laughs> that is so... What a great movie that is, and what a great like a great part. You're a crazy person who thinks he's Roger Moore. I always remember, like again, in the early days of cable TV, there was a, a movie called Folks. I remember that two Fs, two Fs, and O L K S, and it was Anthony Perkins was the villain, and they take these terrorists take over like an oil rig in the middle of the North Atlantic, okay. and they send this guy and his scuba diver frogmen to go and rescue the people on the. Th- it's the most boring movie ever, yep. but I remember being like. Roger Moore in his first non-James Bond role in, you know, blah, blah, number of years. And watching it and struggling to keep my eyes open is, to the climax. Is he your favorite uh, 007? He's my favorite 007, yeah. Really? I know a lot of people that absolutely hate him. Yeah, I know. It's because the movie started to get more ridiculous yeah. once he was in them. But, like, I put up Live and Let Die as... Live and Let Die and Octopussy as the two most entertaining James Bond movies in the series. Yeah, well, Live and Let Die is the one with Baron Samity in it, and that's just yeah, right. badass, that one. Yeah, for sure. Right. <laughs> Super entertaining and a lot of fun. Right, and the car and splits in half, and he's driving half a car around town, yeah. I love the one, I love Octopussy with the Fabergé egg with the nuclear control in it, and Maude Adams and Louis Jordan as the most ridiculous villain. I mean, those they're, they're insane, but I, those are the two that I love the most of all of them. All right, so moving on to the 15th, the last of Charlie's Angels, Tanya Roberts, born in 1955. I remember her from Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, too. Yep, and then she also did a movie, Beastmaster. She, uh, I guess she kind of pigeonholed herself in those kind of roles for a little bit. She's also a Bond girl. She was in Roger Moore's A View to a Kill. Yes. The worst of the James Bond movies. I don't know, man. That don't don't feature any of the posters. Moonraker. Yeah, Moonraker. Well, Moonraker is bad and dumb, but View to a Kill is really. It's just Roger Moore is like, he's so old. They literally have a stuntman for him doing anything that's not sitting in a chair. The best part about that movie was the Duran Duran song. Uh, Exactly. uh, So, moving also on with Tanya Roberts, uh, she was uh, the mom on that 70s show from uh, 98 to 2004. Yeah, she she died young. She just uh, died earlier this year, but she had a long and busy career. Yeah. And, And a beautiful girl, piercing blue eyes. And a good actress, too, irrespective of the crappy roles she kind of found herself in. Right, yeah. She, yeah. Always, always good to watch. <laughs> She's like Tim Curry, the best part of the worst movies. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. So this person's usually the best part of a, of good movies. Who do you have for yeah. the next birthday? Uh, October 16th, 1958. Tim Robbins, who never met a script he didn't participate in, <laughs> irrespective of genre, style, or director. Yep. Uh, but is is good in all of them. Yes. Is born in West Covina, California. It's funny, at the beginning of the, uh, when we were doing the pre-show, we were like listing down all the movies that he did. I was like, oh my God, this guy was in Howard the Duck and Bull Durham just a couple of years apart. Like, what a <laughs> right. what a wide spectrum. And yeah, then we're going, definitely. we're going down all these other lists of movies that he was in, like High Fidelity. And I completely right. forgot that he was in The Shawshank Redemption, which is like the number right. one listed movie on IMDb. Right. Yeah, he's, he's he's played villains, he's played heroes, he's played crazy people, he's played great comedy like in uh, Bill and I were you were, we were talking about tape heads. Oh my god, with yes. him and John John Cusack right. that is a super duper underrated comedy and all all kinds of stuff. And he's just he's a great actor. He's married to uh Susan Sarandon. He's been married to her I think since Bull, Bull Durham. All oh, right, yeah. And uh wrapping up the birthdays October the 17th, she may be Lois Lane to you, but she'll always be Kathy Lutz to me because I'm a horror movie guy. Margot Kidder, born in 1948. Kathy, you ignorant Lutz. <laughs> no. Um, she'll always be uh, Lois Lane to me. I do, rem- I do remember that she was in that weird movie that I saw when they wouldn't sell my friend's mom tickets to Porky's, Some Kind of Hero, with Richard Pryor as like a Vietnam vet. So, oh, wow. I, I forgot that, that movie. movie even existed. <laughs> <laughs> I only saw it that one time in the cinema, but she was in it. Yep. This girl that I dated briefly had never seen the Amityville Horror, so she came over the house and we were watching it. She made up this great drinking game. If you ever watch the Amityville Horror, every time Margot Kidder picks up one of the kids, drink. Mm-hmm. You will be sauced by halfway point through the movie. She is constantly you- picking the kids up. You can play that game with the Omen too. Every time Lee <laughs> Remick picks up picks up friggin' Damien, you'll you'll give yourself liver cancer by the second <laughs> act. Yeah. Oh, it's a nineteen seventies horror movie drinking game. Nineteen seventies <laughs> horror movie drinking. I'm all for that. Yep. Margot Kidder. I'm gonna know her from the Amityville Horror, but she's basically best known for being Lois Lane in the from the Superman movies from the seventies and the eighties. Yeah, the Richard Donner movie. Yeah. Uh, the good ones. Uh, yeah, well, there's my argument. I, I have this. I have this theory that there is no good Superman movies. I mean, Superman two was okay, except for that whole throwing the shield thing at the end, which was stupid, and the kiss of forgetfulness, which is also stupid. But in the first one, it ruins it because she does that poem there when she's flying. Can you read my mind? That whole scene <laughs> just it kills the whole movie. And know what I found out was. That was actually supposed to be a song. Those were lyrics to a song, but they never recorded it, so she just read the lyrics out loud. Right. So, it still gets done as a song if you go if you go like to a I don't know like I went to see the, the Boston Symphony one year and they did yeah. all soundtrack songs and stuff and they sang that. They had a woman come out and wow. sing the lyrics to that song. Was it a good song or was it? The worst song ever. Jeff. Uh, <laughs> I took one for the team this week, and so did you. We both yeah. did. It's true. My my recommendation for worst song ever this week. I am going to be putting myself in a kind of witness protection program because I get the feeling I'm going to get attacked by an army. The worst song ever this week is a song by the insane clown posse called Miracles. I'm going to be right up front. I don't know much 
about ICP. The only thing I really know about them is they had a brief stint in the WWE. That's it. Mm-hmm. So, and I'll I'll jump in and show you the, the part that I took for the team, which was, I, I'm not a, I've never been a fan of, of ICP, but I knew them as sort of Detroit rappers, mm-hmm. be, just because they come up in some of the music publications that I used to read and that I read online and stuff. And I realized that, admittedly, this song sucks. They're like a media empire, like a miniature me- uh, ecosystem, economic ecosystem. Yes. And there's a lot uh, that's way better that they have done than this song, which makes me not feel bad about poking some fun at right. it. Right. There's a lot that we can talk about of stuff that they've really managed to accomplish. Right. All right. So, so before we get into the uh, mini biography of ICP, uh, let's just play a little bit of Miracles and censor friendly it is not, I'm not bleeping anything out on here, so deal with it. Music is a lot like love. It's all a feeling and it fills the room from the floor to the ceiling. I see miracles all around me. Stop and look around, it's all astounding. Water, fire, air and dirt. Fucking magnets, how do they work? And I don't want to talk to a scientist. Y'all motherfuckers lying and getting me pissed. Solar eclipse and vicious weather. 15,000 juggalos together. And I love my mind. There it is. There's the line. This... <laughs> My friend John brought this song to my attention some years ago. Just said, magnets, how do they work? Yeah, I became a meme that that little bit. Yeah. And it's funny because, like, the next lyrics are like, get your science away from me, you know, F you, and you're all liars. Well, it's like all the things that, that Violent J describes as miracles in this song are things that a ninth grade science substitute teacher could explain to you so that you'd understand. Scientist, not necessary. <laughs> substitute science teacher definitely could do the job. Water boiling um, at 100 degrees <laughs> Celsius. What's that all about? <laughs> my son looks just like me. No kidding. Um, <laughs> amazing. Let me talk about Gregor Mendel and his piece. Um, but like, there's a bunch of stuff in this song that's admittedly, and I, I hate to say this, but this song is dumb. But it's not dumb in a terrible way. It's not dumb in like an aggressively stupid way like Cardi B is dumb. It's dumb in a way that is like, you're trying so hard and you, you just whiffed it. Yeah. You whiffed it. Yeah, yeah you're trying you to- the ball, yeah, son. You're, you're trying to sound smart and, and spiritual. They, they went on this like little spirituality- a side project, I guess you could say, for one of their albums. It's like they don't know what they're talking about at all. <laughs> it, this song reminds me of a song, a song from Bone Thugs and Harmony, who who they were friends with earlier in their career. Yeah, called that was really popular. This called The Crossroads. It's the same beat and everything, yeah. and same structure. Now, to give credit where credit is due, ICP are not that old. They're both under fifty. And they started this ICP. It was initially like a gang called the Inner City Posse, and they later changed it to the Insane Clown Posse. But it's because they kept getting arrested and put in jail. Yeah, (laughs) that'll do that. That'll that'll make you change things. But they've been milking this cow, or this carnival clown cow, however you want to word this. But they've been milking this cow for thirty-five years. They started when they were like thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years old. Right. I don't know, man. I had some ideas when I was 14, 15 that I don't even like to admit that I had. But these guys have been rolling with it for all that long. Again, I spent way too many hours listening to ICP records in the last yep. couple of days yep. getting ready for this. And realized, like, eh, you know what? I, I, If I had picked this up when I was around the age that I, I was when I was listening to music like this, I definitely would have had a couple of these CDs in my collection somewhere. Oh, for sure. It's in the same almost category as, like, Guar. Yeah. And Green Jello. 
and even misfits to a lesser extent where the band has its own kind of like mythos. Right. You know? And I'm somebody who, if, if anybody knows me for more than five minutes or listens to records with me for more than five minutes, there's nothing I like better than like bullshit rock stars who get suffused with characters that they can never escape from like Kiss or Guar yep. or Deantverd or Insane Clown Posse or even the monkeys. Like yeah. they, they become the characters that they are portraying. And it's like, you know what? If you're going to double down on this, you know what? I'm going all in. Yeah. And I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for people who can do that, who can take this performance to the point where it is, this is what we do. This is how we do it. If you read through their history, you can see the places where they're like, oh, this works. We'll do this. Oh, this works. We learned this at this show. We'll do this from now on. Oh, the crowd responded well to this. We'll do this. Right. Yeah, it gives a sense of weird sense of community. And that's sort of the thing that they've, they've done with this, this overarching theme of the Dark Carnival that plays off in a bunch of their records and stuff and different eras of the of the group and they've made movies and they sell, I mean, it's all kinds of, all kinds of interesting stuff. And even though every, pretty much every song is boom, 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 boom. And every record, boom, boom. It's the same beat for like almost every Right. Song. And don't, yeah. Um, and it peppered him with it, incredibly, you know, misogynistic lyrics and stuff. Yeah. But I don't think it's any worse than what you were hearing. I mean, for stuff that was coming out in 209 to 2011 to, you know, 1996 to 19, 99 or whatever i don't think it was any different than what you were hearing in other off pop rap or alternative rap or whatever you want to call it it's just that there's they never really evolved away from that right you know hey if it's work if it's working don't fix it i guess you know they have a very very rabid fan base you know the juggalos don't insult them you know what i mean now i'm from massachusetts i'm from southeastern massachusetts there's not a lot of icp around here you know right to the point where i thought they were just kind of like dead not dead but just like not really active or whatever and then i went out to the midwest for the horror conventions that i go to and all these people start going whoop whoop at each other and i'm like what what is going on and somebody had to explain it to me oh those are juggalos that's how they say hi to each other and i'm like what's a juggalo and like icp fans i'm like right. that's a thing still i was confused i really was yeah. Yeah, I was looking at the number of records that I just on Amazon Prime Music that I can listen to. Yep. There's like 36 records there. Oh, sure. Some of them are live and some of them are greatest hits things and B-sides and other stuff and re-releases. But like 36 records is a lot of records, Bill. Yeah. I just went down and I watched <laughs> I watched two short documentaries because like I said, I had to find out about this band that I, I honestly don't know enough about. It's an interesting story. It's not really for me. This isn't really the kind of music that I listen to. But it's a very interesting story, what we like to refer to as outsider music. But the music is actually pretty contemporary. They just make themselves outsiders. But everybody hates us. And that's the appeal. I think that's why they have so many fans is because everybody hates them. Yeah, I don't know if that's as much the case as it is that they just found an identity that tends to draw in people that are, tend to be on the fringes. Like they play like that whole like horror. It, they're technically called like horrorcore yeah. rappers, right? So they draw in people who are pr- probably more into like extreme films and, you know, they're not weird enough to be gothy, but they're going to listen to like hair metal or whatever. So... So there's a like a place where horror movies and and that sort of culture f- mixes. I mean, even like now that there is a community of people who do hauntings and stuff, I'm not surtprised that you saw that right going out to the Midwest for Midwest ha- Hauntercon, right? Because that's kind of where a lot of this audience draws from. 
they don't get radio play. They get they had a couple of videos on MTV, Mir- Miracles being one of yeah. them, <laughs> hilariously. This song shows up on the record Bang Pow Boom, which came out in, I think, 2009 or 2010. And I, there were a couple of songs of this that I was like, I'm going to go back and listen to that one a couple of times. So like, I could see the humor in some of this. And I, I like the Meat Men and Guar. And there's a bunch of the, the sort of similar vibe of goofiness in those that there is in this. Right. And I, I found myself sort of giggling along with the, you know, boom, 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 beat that every every single song in a row. Had. Yeah, I mean, if you're a fan um, of, of if you're a fan of Guar and you listen to a song called F***ing an Animal, you can't pre- pretend to be offended by ICP. Right, exactly. Yeah, so they have a Christmas album. I forget. I forget <laughs> of course, the, of course they do. I forget Bill. the name of it. Of course they my do. Friend, <laughs> my friend Andrea gave it to me. It is freaking hilarious, top to bottom. It's hilarious. But wrapping up the show, I do have my trivia question. The trivia question was: The Looney Tunes have that theme song that you can hum right now, but that theme song has a name and it actually has lyrics. What is the name of the Looney Tunes theme song? And I'm going to give you the hint. Ready? Okay. Merry Melodies was the name of the cartoons. They were called Looney Tunes, but they were also called Merry Melodies. Remember? Merry Melodies, right? Yep. Yep. There's your hint. Not much of a hint, does it? Uh, I, feel like, I, feel like, I feel like we should have the Jeopardy music going. I'm going to say, is it Miracles? And does it contain the lyrics, Magnets? How do they work? No, it is not. Oh. The name of the song is... The Merry Go Round Broke Down. That is the name of the song. Huh. And lyrically, it's, uh, yeah. Um, uh, Merry Go Round Broke Down. The Merry Go Round Broke Down. Well, no, well, no, no. The next took line a is. Thing uh, and killed it. Whatever. I actually have a copy of it with the Three Stooges singing it. Oh, the Merry Go Round Broke Down. As we went round and round. Each time would miss, we'd steal a kiss. While the Merry Go Round went. But that is going to wrap up this week's show. We will see you back here in, what do you think, seven days? Seven days sounds good. Seven, seven days, yes. Seven days. Merry-go-rounds. How do they work? <laughs> How do they work? Yep. Man, uh, it's a miracle. All right. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Good night, everybody. Bye, guys. Hey, thanks for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. You can find us and message us on Instagram and Facebook using TWWWBLY. Make sure you tell all your friends how much you love our podcast. Word of mouth is way, way cheaper than advertising. <laughs>